Well, today you will have noticed that we have some of our varsity kids involved in leading us in worship. I want to thank all of you who've taken part. That is so awesome. And they will be in the service for the teaching time, so I'm going to try and wind together teaching and story in a way that has something for everyone. So let me start with a question. What do you like about stories? Maybe you think they're interesting, or maybe they're entertaining, or maybe they teach us something. So Jesus used story all the time, and he didn't just tell it to kids, tell them to kids, he told them to adults who he was trying to teach. And stories are great because they help us think about something, maybe that we didn't know before, or something that we thought we knew and we weren't thinking rightly about. And so stories are great for that. We have lots of those kinds of stories. But did you know that we all create stories that we tell ourselves to help make sense of what's going on around us. And we call those our personal narratives. And we use those stories to help us explain to ourselves or to others what's happened in our past or what's happening right now that we're trying to make sense of or that we are anticipating either with fear or excitement about what's going to happen in the future. We're storytelling creatures, and I am confident that God made us that way. And these stories that we tell ourselves have something that underlies them, a belief that we probably deeply hold, whether we're aware of it or not. So every once in a while, it's good to pause and ask Are the stories I'm telling myself and that I'm living from, are the beliefs underneath them true? What is shaping my stories? Are they based on God's values and his dream for us, for human flourishing? Or are the beliefs that I'm living from more influenced by the culture that I live in, from this cultural moment? Because asking that question is um, super important because those beliefs and stories absolutely shape how we live. So let's look at a couple of examples. We tell a story to ourselves about our identity, about who we are and whether we have worth. So for many, many people, their worth is tied up in what they produce. Um, in our culture, if you have a good job and you're successful at that job, and then you can buy a home and drive a nice car, then you can feel good about yourselves. And others will think of you as a successful person, right? And the, um, that is the key to your identity, and it underlies what we consider living a good life. And it is a strong cultural narrative, and We've breathed in that story so long that we've sort of adopted it as our own. But here's the rub. What if there comes a time when you can no longer do the thing or the things that gave you identity? You get sick and you have to take a leave. You retire and you no longer have that job. Or maybe you have some challenge that has made it almost impossible for you uh, to get the kind of job that our culture applauds. Well, if your worth hinges on having that job and being successful at it to prove your worth, well, then what? 
Our invitation is to stop and ask the question, is the belief under the story we've been telling ourselves true? Is it true? What if God says something else? What if God calls you his beloved? And before you do one single thing, no matter what job you have or how many things you own or how beautiful you are, God thinks you have infinite value. So, who are you going to believe? The culture you live in or God? Only one of them is telling the truth, by the way, and I'm going to strongly suggest it's God that's telling the truth. You are his beloved. That's who you are, no matter what. Or maybe the story we tell ourselves is a story our culture tells, um, and it's that if I have lots of money and I'm able to purchase lots of things and if I can go on trips, then I will be happy. And then I will be living the good life. Well, if that's our story and we organize our lives around that story or that belief, then what happens when we find that all the things we've collected don't really make us happy and potentially even make us dissatisfied? Well, what then? And our invitation is to stop, take a look at the story we're living from, and ask, is the belief under this narrative actually true? Well, if you listen to Renus uh, last week, he talked about how some things sometimes that we believe can be half true. It's not completely untrue. It's just only half true. So having enough money so you can afford a place to live, food to eat, clothes to wear... That is super important, right? If you don't have enough money, life is incredibly stressful. It's a struggle. But the part that's not true is that having more money, or lots more money as often the case is, doesn't actually make people a lot happier. And social scientists have done all kinds of research on this, and they keep trying to tell us that, that the conclusion they've come to is that Lots of money doesn't make us happier, but if the story we tell ourselves and live out of doesn't recognize that, well, we could spend our whole lives putting our best time and effort into something that in the end doesn't make us happier and could distract us from God or from what God says is really important, which is our relationships with him, with our family, with each other, with our friends, so does the story we tell ourselves about how to achieve the good life line up with what's important to God? Have we breathed in and ingested something from our culture that is actually not true? One more example. I may be about to shoot myself, so bear with me. It's around our cultural narrative related to our rights as Canadians to personal freedom. Ah, you've heard lots about that in the news, I know. And I'm on a slippery slope, but stay with me for a moment. You and I, as a Christian community, if we can't talk about the things that are important to us or that perplex us, if we can't talk about them together, then where can we talk about them? So I want to invite you at least to hear me out. I think I have a slide um, that talks about our culture's working definition of freedom. Uh, not not that one. There, there is a slide uh, from my slide series um, that 
has a cultural definition of freedom. Ah, there it is. Thank you. We have a, by the way, we have a new tech person in the balcony, and this is his first Sunday doing it, and he is doing a great job. <laughs> All right. Here's our culture's definition broadly of um, freedom. It's that freedom is being able to make my cho own choices about the things that are important to me without anyone telling me what I have to do. Let me read that again. Freedom is being able to make my own choices about things that are important to me without anyone telling me what to do. And I know that's a black and white um, definition, but that sort of is where we le lean. And I think it sounds about right, correct? And of course, we're all smart enough to know that um, because we live together with other people, we will from time to time moderate our own personal freedoms, right? So you wear your seatbelt, you drive the speed limit, you stop at a stop sign, um, you don't go to the doctor, if, doctor's office if you have COVID, right? You don't do that. Um, you cannot kill another person, even if they're doing you harm. So we have freedoms, but we moderate our freedoms in order to live well together. And uh, we've always agreed on that, even if sometimes somewhat grudgingly. And we live in a country that has given us, in many ways, very generously, a tremendous amount of freedom. Without enumerating them all, I am particularly, particularly grateful for the freedom to gather here, to believe in God, and to be able to um, come to worship without harassment. And that is not true for many people in our world. So even though our country is not perfect, and we recognize that, we are blessed with many freedoms. But at issue right now is what we do with our freedoms. Do we use them for ourselves, or do we use them for the common good? And what would using them for the common good look like in a time when we can't even agree what the common good actually is? And deeper even than that, we seem not to be able to agree on what is true or not true anymore. Our postmodern culture, with all its leanings and assumptions, has brought into question whether truth can even be known. And that has not actually landed us in a very good place. So I put an article on Sermons Plus that was in this week's edition of the Maclean's magazine. And the article launches its discussion with the example of Neil Young and his confrontation with Spotify this week. He will not leave his music on the same streaming service as someone else whose version of truth he profoundly disagrees with. But the article at the bottom, at, at its bottom line, is addressing the thorny issue about whether truth can be known. Can we know what's true or not true? Huh. And if there is no solid foundation that we are standing on in terms of common ground, then what we find is the fissures getting larger and wider and deeper. Well, I don't know how to solve the issue causing all the angst in our society. These days, you'll be happy to know. <laughs> so I'm not going to go in there, but I want to invite us to take a step back from conversations about celebrities using their um, 
influence to tell us what is right or wrong. I want you to step back from conversations that make us hyperventilate about the convoy this week. And I want you to ask a different question. Could we at least consider what does God say in his word about personal freedom? What was his example or his role model when he was on earth? What did he do with his freedoms? And um, what is his vision for us as his followers? If Galatians 5 is correct, then at a minimum it calls us to use our freedoms in the service of others, which, Paul says, includes loving our neighbor as ourself, even those neighbors we disagree with, or those neighbors we profoundly disagree with. Could that belief that I use my freedoms in service to others in any way alter the story that we are telling ourselves in this cultural moment? Is it possible it could help us to live a bit better in these fractured times? I wish I could tell you exactly what to think or believe, but I cannot. But I can invite us to maybe something a bit better. And in case we lose perspective and think we are living in unique times and that this kind of disagreement and fracture has never before happened in the history of humankind, I would like us to turn our attention to Scripture. And I'm going to wind the story together with, um, uh, with a little bit of commentary. So um, you can open your Bibles to 1 Kings 18, although I'm only reading portions of it. But I'm in 1 Kings 18, and we are going to hear about a prophet named Elijah who was living in equally unsettled times. And it might be a story you're already familiar with. You might know it already. But as you listen to it today, I want you to keep in mind two questions. First, what kinds of things in Elijah's time were people struggling with? What were they struggling against? And then, where do you see God in this story. So quick context. The nation of Israel has a very bad king named Ahab and an evil wife named Jezebel. Now I know these days we try not to call people bad. We just say they do bad things. But scripture uses Ahab and Jezebel as an archetype for evil. So today if I want to talk about somebody who is really bad... I might still call them a Jezebel because all these thousands of years later, we still recognize that Jezebel embodied everything that we think of as evil. And she, Ahab and Jezebel, did not love the one true God, and they were leading people away from following him. And they did this in part by giving special privileges to the leaders of a pagan religion whose God was an idol. It wasn't even a real thing. And then they were killing off the spiritual leaders and priests of the one true God. Ahab and Jezebel were trying to make it look like God was not the one in control and that their side was winning. Well, how would you have felt if you were there? Huh. And the idol Queen Jezebel followed was named Baal. And even though it wasn't a real thing, the people who followed it believed that it could cause it to rain. And if you had rain, you would have good crops, right? 
And to get this God's blessing, you had to make sacrifices, but sometimes they were sacrifices of the worst sort, if you know what I mean. This was not a good God. And you could think about Jezebel as their culture's worst version of an influencer. We have influencers in our culture. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't. Well, Jezebel was her culture's bad influencer. She had a powerful voice that the people listened to and respected. She had the microphone, as it were. And the message she and the priests of Baal were giving people was that, uh, was leading them away from the God who had brought these very people out of Egypt from slavery and had been their God all the way along. So, the one true God, Yahweh, brought a drought. You know what a drought is, right? Right? It's when it just plain stops raining. And God brought a drought for three years. And you can imagine what that did to the crops. We live in a country that depends on rain. We know what that's like. And even though Jezebel and her priests thought that Baal was the one who brought the rains, they could not make it rain. Because an idol just can't do that. But now God was about to do something new. He let Elijah know that the three years of drought were up and he was going to tell bad king Ahab that he, God, was going to send rain on the land. So Elijah, who loved God and was obedient to him, had to go give that message. He had to go talk to king Ahab. So I want to ask, do you think Ahab would have been afraid? He's the one guy who's going to stand up against a bad king who's been wiping out God's prophets. Do you think he was afraid? I think if it was me, I'd be afraid. Renus, would you be afraid? He would be afraid. He said so. Um, But Ahab did not let his fear stop him because the story he lived from was that God was God, that God was powerful, and he could do what no other God could. And he was worth following, and he was worth obeying. Well, 1 Kings 18 tells us he went to the official in, of Ahab's, whose name was Obadiah. How would you like that name? Obadiah. And he was a follower of the one true God. And he'd actually been rescuing some of God's prophets and priests and hiding them in, a, in caves and giving them food and water so they could stay alive. He was a good man. So Elijah went to him and told him, I know I've been in hiding for the last three years, but as the Lord God Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself before Ahab today. So Obadiah went and found King Ahab, who then went to meet Elijah. And when he, Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of, of Israel? Well, when I read that, it reminded me that we all have a perspective a set of lenses that we see things through. So Obadiah saw Elijah as a faithful follower of the one true God, but Ahab saw him as the nation's a national troublemaker. So which is he? Is he a troublemaker or is he a good guy? 
So if Ahab would have had social media, you know what he would have done? He would have made up some really nasty memes about, um, a- about Elijah. He would have called him names to sully his reputation. And then people would have chose sides. And some people would believe the lies and say he was the cause of the country's ills. It was his fault that there'd been no rain. As though a person could make it not rain. And the other side would see him as a savior. So, which is he? And how do we sort through all the opinions that come at us and decide what's true and what's not true? Well, if you're looking to God to form your understanding, then the answers will be obvious. But if not, sorting through things uh, was hard back then and it, as it was as hard back then as it is now. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now that was true. If truth is based on God's word, it had been Ahab and his family who were in the wrong. But people then, as now, still get to decide who they're going to believe. Elijah knew that. So Elijah says... Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. So bad King Ahab did what Elijah said. So if he were in Calgary, let's see if we can get a slide up here. If he were in Calgary, it would be like he said, I want everyone to meet me at the Saddle Dome tomorrow. And we're going to settle this issue once and for all. And that invitation went out to all the people. So picture yourself, not at the Saddle Dome, but on Mount Carmel. And everyone who is anyone is there. The priests of Baal are there all dressed up in their finest religious robes. The king has a front row seat and important dignitaries are around him. And then there's everyone else like us who are there to watch the big showdown. And that's when Elijah turns to the crowd And I want us to hear what he says. Michael is going to come and read to us what um, Elijah said to the crowd. So, Michael, can you come on up? Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled it on Prophet's Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Thank you so much. Do you wonder why the people said nothing? Well, maybe for some of them, it's because the story they lived from was that they were powerless in the face of evil Queen Jezebel. And if they were to stay alive, which was sort of the goal, they would need to be careful about where they admitted they believed in the one true God. Or sometimes people go silent when they're afraid of what others will say about them. And for others, maybe they didn't say anything because they just didn't actually know what to think um, because there there were competing messages out there. And the king and queen had been using their influence, putting their weight behind the prophets of Baal. So perhaps some people let the influence of this powerful person sway them when they were trying to decide what was true or not true. 
It would be like us listening to celebrities and letting them tell us what's true or not true, rather than getting our cues from God. And then there were those who said nothing, maybe because they just plain didn't believe in God. There were lots of people around then um, who were like that, just as there are now. But then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Where did Elijah get that message or idea from? I think bad Queen Jezebel had said that to him, given him that message, and he actually believed it, even though there was no real proof of that. But Elijah came to believe it deeply in his heart. And it was a very sad story he found himself living from, especially because he was to discover wasn't really based on any truth. So now the challenge. Each side was to make an altar. They were to put wood on it. They were to take an animal and prepare it for sacrifice, but not to set fire to it. And then the prophets of Baal were to call on the name of their God, to, uh, and then Elijah would do the same thing, and the God who answered by sending fire would, and that burned up the sacrifice, well, then the people would know that that was God, the true God. So the people agreed that was a good plan, and thus began the great showdown. And the prophets of Baal got busy and did what Elijah said, and then they started calling on their God, who was not really a God. And of course, there was no answer. So Elijah prods them a little. He says, call louder. Maybe your God is sleeping, or maybe he's gone away. But nothing happened. All day, nothing happened. And then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And he took 12 stones and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold 44 liters. And he arranged the wood and he put the sacrifice on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars full of water and bring it and pour it over the offering and the wood, which they did. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. There would be no question about whether Elijah had cheated the system. If there was to be a fire that burned this offering, only God could do that. And now, let's hear the prayer that Elijah prayed. Holly is going to read it for us. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Thank you, Holly. Well, Elijah knows that the only way people will know God is God is if he answers. And his deep desire is not that God will scare the people, but that God will turn their hearts back to him. So they will quit believing the lies they've been hearing around them, and so they will let God be the one who tells them what is true and how to live the good life. 
Well, scripture tells us, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and soil, and it also licked up all the water in the trenches. Okay, that is a miracle. And then the people responded, and it is your turn to respond. So if you could read the words on the screen together with me. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It was impressive, and the people responded with awe and belief. Now, maybe you haven't seen God do a miracle like this in response to uh, the complicated situations you are living in. And maybe you'd love to see him do something spectacular and make it really super clear which side or perspective is right. Wouldn't that be great? I would really like that. But whether God does a miracle or not, let me invite you to keep on faithfully praying because really you never know what God might do. And then, as you wait with perseverance, pray that he will fill you with the fruit of the Spirit so that the way you live represents him well in this day. Well, there's a lot more to the story, but I want us to jump ahead to see how God continues to be faithful and help Elijah. First, bad queen Jezebel sends a threatening message to Elijah and says, so help me, I'm going to get you. And then Elijah, who really was actually afraid, even though he'd just seen God do this amazing miracle, runs for his life. Remember, he thought he was the only follower of God left. And he finds a tree and he drops under it in depressed exhaustion and goes to sleep. He just wishes the struggle was over. But interestingly, God isn't mad at him. And God isn't disappointed in him. He sends an angel to Elijah with some food to eat. And he gives him water to drink and a chance to rest because he's so tired. And the next day, it's the same. More food, more water, more chance to just rest. Until he's finally strong enough to do a long journey to a place where he would meet with God. And it was a significant place that he would end up, the same place where Moses had met with God many, many years earlier. And then we're told, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty The Israelites have rejected your covenant and tore down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. God knew that Elijah was disappointed and that he thought he was alone, but God is God and he knew that wasn't actually true. God would go on to tell him there were actually 7,000 people who had never bent their knee to Baal. It's a lot of people, isn't it? 7,000. And that God actually had a plan going forward. But what I love about this part of the story is that God wasn't mad at Elijah for being tired or disappointed or despairing. And here's what happened instead. Watch the video. 
God had spoke in two different ways. First, he had spoken in a miracle that wowed everyone. But then he also spoke in a still, quiet voice. God had more to say to Elijah, but here's the important part, I think. First, God knew that Elijah had heard things that weren't true and that had formed the story he was telling himself that had discouraged him. He'd believed Jezebel without meaning to, and it was making it really hard for him to trust God. But God's first response to Elijah was love and concern. He cared for him with food and water and rest. And it's a picture of a good and loving God, a good and loving father who wants his love to be at the root of any story we tell ourselves or that we live by. And second, God made himself present to Elijah. If Elijah would just stand still and listen, God would speak. And he spoke in a still, quiet voice, but he spoke. And I want to leave us with those two things, which are deep truths that I hope will lay at the root of any story you tell yourself these days. First, God cares about you and is for you. You are not alone. And second, God speaks if we will quiet ourselves and listen. I know Renus reminded us last week about the spiritual practices that are on Sermons Plus, and I want to remind us again about them as well. It's so easy to listen to the things that are not true in our culture. But I want to encourage you to counteract the untrue and the unhelpful messages that you've been hearing by finding ways to allow the voice of God, the voice of the one who loves you, to be at the root of any story you tell this week about yourself and about others. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Elijah. I thank you that you so powerfully showed that you are God. And I thank you that the truth of you is a firm foundation to stand on and that your words are good. And they lead us to live in good and hopeful ways. And so, God, in our day and in the things that we are encountering, I pray that we, ah, we would live from your truth. Help us to live your fruit, goodness, kindness, love, joy, patience, peace. Help us not to forget even when we are perplexed. God, help us to be good news where you put us. And thank you that you speak to us, that we are not alone. Father, in these days, I pray that you would hold us and we would know that we are held. In Jesus' name, amen.